And Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be speaking to us just those things that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Revelation 2 this morning. We started back in last week. Preparing to teach this passage, it's actually, we've gone through chapter 1 of Revelation. Actually, I've always wanted to get to chapter 2 and 3. Those were the passages I really wanted to teach, but we had to get through chapter 1 to do that, so to speak. So, actually, I've been more excited about the passages starting this morning. We took a family vacation many years ago, and we went through the Northwest, and there was one place we had meant to stop at called Agate Beach on the North California coast. And if you want to pick up agates, you get on this beach, and the problem is knowing when to stop. Because you look down at one place, and there's these great-looking agates, and you pick some up, and you turn around, and you look down, and you pick up more, and you know you've got there's more to pick up than you can. And that's what this passage is like. There's so much here uh, that, as is often the case, we kind of scratch the surface in what we go through this morning. This is the portion, chapters 2 and 3. These are the letters Jesus gives to the churches. You remember everything in chapter 1 almost has been leading up to these letters, these seven letters. And in each one, Jesus is going to write to a church, and he's going to introduce himself in a particular fashion. He's going to commend what is commendable. He's going to reprove or criticize what needs correction. He's going to promise reward or threaten judgment and then he's going to appeal to those who will to listen it makes me think you know this was written we've said before to a church at Ephesus but the truth is we've said these churches are representative indeed so that as we read them whether we're a church now in Topeka Kansas or if we were a church a thousand years ago in Asia Minor or any other part of the world We can read the admonition or the instruction to any of these churches at any time and gain instruction for ourselves. So hopefully as we study through these letters, we're asking ourselves, if Jesus is writing the letter to me today, what am I supposed to be hearing? Or if Jesus is addressing our church today, what does he intend us to get out of the message? This first letter is to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a really important city at the time that this was written. Uh, Rich in history, a wealthy area. It's interesting, too, because not only is it first in the list of churches mentioned here, but this was uh, an important church in an important city and a church that we probably know more about than any other New Testament church. If you're reading through Acts, if you look at chapters 19 and 20, most of those two chapters are committed to what's going on at Ephesus. And Paul's ministry there, or Paul's instructions to the elders of that church. We've got an epistle to the Ephesians, six chapters long. It's got some of the deepest theology. It talks about things like election and the mystery of the church that Paul's revealing and spiritual warfare. So we know what God was saying to the Ephesians through that letter. Also, though, the epistle to First Timothy, the first letter Paul writes to Timothy... These are instructions to Timothy related to his ministry in the city of Ephesus. So when you read that epistle, you're reading instructions again that Paul is giving through Timothy to this same church. Most of what we know from Acts or from those other epistles, though, that probably took place by 60 A.D. or so. John's writing, just say 90 to 95 A.D. So 
the generation that we read about in Acts, most of them are gone. It'd only be the tail end of that first generation of Christians that would be left. And it would be the second generation, their children who had been raised up in the church, who would be hearing this letter. The last of the first generation and most of the second generation would be the ones getting this message. So this is a church that's gone through a pretty significant life cycle in the last 40 years or so. And take that into account as we read about it. So it was a glorious church, state-of-the-art church. If I could have picked any church to visit in the seven, this would have been the one I would have enjoyed going to, I think. State-of-the-art church, glorious history, but everything wasn't quite what it appeared to be. And that's what we'll look at here in just a second. Look at verse 1. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, remember Jesus standing in heaven, telling John, write to each of them. So the first one, church at Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Last week we looked at this image. Remember Jesus, the Jesus John sees, he's in heaven. He's got in his right hand seven stars, which he has said are the seven messengers to the seven different churches. And it also says that he is standing in the midst of the lampstands and that those lampstands represent the churches themselves. And we said, clearly, this communicates Jesus' authority and power. He's the one who controls the messengers of the churches. And like a general, he stands in the midst of an army, in this case the churches, and he oversees and he directs. He's the one calling the shots. So it's interesting when he addresses this state-of-the-art church at Ephesus, he tells them that the one who is sending the letter is the one that they answer to. The church at Ephesus serves at his pleasure. He is the authority, and he is the one they need to listen to. So he introduces himself as the one in authority. The first thing he tells them in verse 2 is, I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The first thing he tells them is that he knows. He knows. And this is true in every one of these epistles. You remember earlier in the description of Jesus, it says he has eyes of fire. And we said the clear allusion here is that he sees everything. His vision is searching and penetrating. It consumes anything in its way so that he sees things as they really are. So his eyes see past deeds and actions. They see to hearts and motives, these eyes of fire. I think we said that in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this fire is also the theme of Jesus' judgment, that in the future when we stand before him to have our works tried, it will be by fire. It will test the quality of what we've done. Down on earth, we look at each other's lives and we can see things, but we just see the outside. Jesus sees the heart and the motives. He sees everything. He knows everything. As in all of the epistles except one, Jesus begins with commendations. He commends this church at Ephesus for what is praiseworthy. And look at this list. This is impressive. He says he knows and he commends or he praises their deeds or their work, their actions. He praises their toil. This is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word that means to strike or to hit. And this is kind of the picture. It's like a stonemason in a quarry with a hammer and a chisel. 
And blow by blow, hour after hour, he grinds out this toiling, arduous, hard work to cut out some rock. That's the picture. So he doesn't just praise that they've been active. They've done the right things. They've done work. But he also says, you guys have really toiled. You've been like the mason in the quarry. It hasn't been easy. In the heat of the day, blow by blow, you have been steadily working, hard working at my things. Then he says he praises their perseverance. This means patient endurance. So they're out there actively working, positively working at what they need to be doing, but also they're enduring. And you know, like any of the churches in New Testament times and many churches around the world today, there was persecution for these guys to face and to go through. They endured much and with patience. This is a Christian virtue. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Long-suffering, patient, enduring. Jesus praises them for. He also says last in that verse, they cannot endure evil men or imposters. They won't carry them along. They won't put up with them. They're false. So they, they've been hard at work, uh, probably uh, inferring evangelism, perhaps social things as well. They've also tested these guys that have come along and said, hey, we speak for the Lord. They didn't just receive them. They didn't just accept the claim. It says they proved them. They tried them. They tested them and found that they were false. All good things. Verse 3, he says, he reiterates again, you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Perseverance, same trait, praised again. Endured for my name. In other words, Many of the troubles in their life, many of the grueling work they do, it is all connected to the name of Jesus himself. It's all connected to him. It's because they're Christians. It's because they name his name that they need to persevere. And they have not grown weary. Now, I can imagine if you and I are in the church at Ephesus and we hear this written to us, we're kind of, I think we're taking a deep sigh of relief. Man, the Lord knows. He knows how hard we've been working. He knows the good stuff we've been doing. And we would feel pretty good about it. And we would have reason to because the Lord's patting our back and saying, you guys have been faithful and you've done a good job. And it's been hard. And there's no, this in no way minimizes any of this. It's been hard work and Jesus is saying, good job, well done. So, feeling great about what Jesus has said so far, I suspect that the following verses feel like a slap in the face. Or it feels like you're sitting in the living room, I do, and my clock's chiming the wrong time, and I'm wondering who switched the clock? Who changed the script? We're working hard, we're doing the right thing, we're suffering for his name. Now what's he say? Verse 4, but... When the Lord says but, then we need to really prick our ears up. But, I have this... Against you, you have left your first love. I have this against you, you have left your first love. Now, all of us love to hear praise, and it's a good thing. And we should encourage each other through praising what is praiseworthy. Absolutely legitimate. Jesus does it. We should do it. However, this verse, this is the center of this letter. You know, if Jesus doesn't include verses 4 and 5... He is leaving the Ephesians to eventual spiritual starvation and death. And as much as they appreciate the accolades, this is what they need to hear. 
They need the slap in the face. They need verses 4 and 5. They need the corrective more than they needed the praise. And Jesus says, I'm going to put my finger on something that you may not be aware of. It's sin in the church, in this state-of-the-art, hard-working, toiling, persevering church. You have lost, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. And Jesus is calling them back to first love. This thought of God calling you back to where you used to be, this is a pretty consistent theme in Scripture. Just one example out of the Old Testament. In the life of Jacob, Jacob the heel grabber, the trickster, after he's tricked his father, and after he has sort of swindled the birthright from his brother, he's getting out of town before Big Brother comes to do bodily harm to him. He's leaving basically without any resources. And as he's heading out of the land that God has actually intended to give him, he's destitute, he's desperate, and he goes to a place called Bethel. He calls Bethel the house of God. Because there at night, destitute, desperate, alone, in this impassioned spirit, he cries out to God and he says, God, please bless me. God, I need you. If you'll take care of me, if you'll meet my needs, you'll be my God. I'll return a portion of what you bless me with to you. You'll be God. And so he goes to Haran, and he's there for about 20 years. And he comes back after 20 years. When the tricker has been tricked himself, he comes back. He left empty. He comes back full. He left by himself. He comes back with a tribe. He left with nothing. He comes back with incredible wealth. And as he's resettling in the land that is his promise, that is his birthright, God calls him in chapter 35 and says, Jacob, go back to Bethel, build an altar, and worship me. The first time he's at Bethel, he's passionate because he's desperate. So he's crying out with all his heart and soul to God. Now he's wealthy. And he's back in the land. And the dust is settling and life kind of gets on. And God calls him and he says, Jacob, go back to Bethel. Go back to the place of your first impassioned pleas to me. Go back to the place of first love. Do you know the first thing Jacob does? He turns around to his household and he says, get rid of your idols. The story hasn't told us this. It hasn't told us that his household now is full of pagan idols. When God calls him back to the place of first love, Jacob says, oh gosh, it just strikes me. My family, my tribe, we've entertained all this idolatry. So the first thing he does is, before he's willing to go face God at the place of first love, Bethel, He knows he has to clean up his life. He's got to repent and get rid of these things, this baggage that he's brought along with him. God calls him back to the place of first love, and to get there, he's got to repent and get rid of the baggage. With that in in mind, or with that scene in mind, coming back to our epistle, I wonder if the church at Ephesus isn't kind of like the older brother in the story in Luke 15, the story about the prodigal son, it's probably, it may be arguably the most famous of the New Testament stories. Do you know the story? 
younger brother tells dad, I'm out of here, give me my inheritance, I'm going to go live the life I've always dreamed of. So he does. And he wastes all his wealth. And he's destitute. But he comes to his senses, he repents of his misdeeds, and he returns to his father. And his father embraces him because Junior is back and the relationship is restored. When father comes to big brother and says, come and rejoice with us, your brother who was dead is alive again. Big brother's response is, no thanks. And in Luke 15, 29, this is big brother's response. Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a single command. But you haven't given me a lamb for my parties. I've been here every day, day in and day out. I've been toiling. I've been persevering. I've been the faithful one. And now you welcome Junior back and you throw a party for him. The father tells him, son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Big Brother was faithfully laboring at home, but his heart was as far and distant and removed from his father as his younger brother's was. Younger Brother left physically and ended the relationship. Older Brother was at home the whole time, and his heart was not with his father. He missed the whole thing. See, Dad didn't care about the stuff. He cared about the relationship. That's why when Junior returns, he doesn't care that he spent the inheritance because he's after Junior. He's after his son. So the indictment on the older brother is that the older brother, see, he's there with all the stuff, but he doesn't have the relationship either. And the whole point of that story, the prodigal, is not the prodigal. It's the older brother. It's the Pharisees. In Jesus' time, they're the older brother. See, they're religious. They've memorized the Torah. They can recite the Psalms and the Proverbs. They would tell you they've been faithfully laboring at God's work. They've been carrying the load. They've been helping Israel stay on the straight and narrow. But what does Jesus say to them? You know, he holds out all his sternest indictments for the Pharisees for those who proclaimed religious purity, but he said were in fact far from God in fact and in heart. Listen to what he says. He quotes Isaiah 29. He said, This people draws near with their words. They honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me. Their reverence or their fear for me consists of traditions learned by rote. Jesus looks at a religious community that's full of good works, doing all the right religious stuff. And he says, your hearts are far removed from God. There's no love. You're hypocrites. You hold one thing, but you live another. You say you value God, but you don't. Your hearts are far away. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. If you're a parent and you've worked all day and you come home and your child runs out to greet you and they throw their arms around you and they say, oh, mom or dad, I'm thrilled to see you home. I made you a cake. And you walk into the kitchen and it's a mess and there's flour and egg all over the counter and the floor. And the cake is lopsided and the icing's half on and half off. And they look at their creation and they say, I made it for you. Now, as a parent, what's your response? You're thrilled. Yes, there's a mess to clean up. And yes, things are not all that they could be, or maybe one day will be. That's not the point, though, is it? 
you are thrilled that you have your child's heart. You're thrilled that your child loves you. You're thrilled that your child is presenting to you the fruits of their devotion and love. That's the thing, and that's what you see. That's why your heart, you love it. Contrast with, the, with this. Let's say you're a spouse. Say you're a husband. You've come home from a long day at work. You come home, you open the door, and you don't hear anything. But you walk into the dining room, and the table is set. And it looks like a fine French restaurant. The best china, the best silverware. There's a gourmet meal. It's steaming on the table. Happens to Brad every day, doesn't it, Jamie? That's it. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. And the gourmet meal sitting on the plates is steaming, and it smells great, but no one's around. And you walk through the house, and you finally find your wife down maybe in the basement family room like our house, and she's reading the paper, or she's watching the TV. And you walk in, and she doesn't even acknowledge your presence. And you say, hi, honey, and she says, hi, dinner's ready. You can go, go eat, and I'll be up after a while. What's your response? It doesn't matter that the table's set. It doesn't matter that everything looks great. It doesn't matter that it's a gourmet meal on the table. Because your wife is giving you stuff, but not herself. The giver is giving things, but not the giver themselves. So how tasty is the meal? How important is it that it looks great? Because as a husband, you don't really have your spouse or your spouse's heart. Or if you're a wife and your husband works those long hours and he comes home and he's grumpy and he eats your food and he never says thanks and he goes to bed and he gets up and he does this day after day and you say, honey, don't you love me? And he says, well, sure I do. I work for you every day. And for a while you start saying, well, you know, I'd, I'd rather you worked a little less. And Does the work really represent love? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. We want the giver, not just the gift. That's what Jesus says. Now, I don't think for Ephesus that at this point they are drastically down the road like the Pharisees were. But with his x-ray vision, Jesus sees that just like Lot's wife leaving the city, what's, what's Lot's wife do, you remember? She looks back. Why does she look back? Because her heart is in Sodom. Her heart's in Sodom. She looks back, and Jesus knows that the church at Ephesus, even though on the outside things look great, they're state-of-the-art, they're working hard, they've got all the right programs, they're doing all the right things. He looks at them and says, you have a cancer. You have a heart disease. It's already started. You've lost your first love. This is a fatal disease. It's in its infancy. It's in just the beginning stages, but I know it's there and I'm telling you about it. I'm warning you about it. You've lost your first love. Now, he doesn't just indict and he doesn't just reprove. He offers solutions. He continues and says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is a severe threat. This is as severe as it gets. Excuse me. The most severe threat for a Christian, if you read passages like 1 Corinthians 11, God took the life of Christians 
because they had dishonored him so. He ended their life on earth. 1 Corinthians 11. He warns this state-of-the-art church at Ephesus, I will end your life. I will remove you from my service. You will not be calling my name as a church. I will remove you. When he says, I'll remove your, your candle or your lampstand, that's the image of their testimony for him. He says, unless you repent and return and do the first deeds, the things you used to do, I'm going to remove you from my service. You can go to places today, and there are churches or empty church buildings where churches are no more. There is no testimony there left for Christ. He threatens spiritual death, the removal of the, of the church as his witness, if they don't turn around. This sounds really harsh. When he's had so much to praise them for and they've been faithful so long, this sounds incredibly harsh. I think it probably gets down to a couple things. Biblically, Scripture makes it clear that to whom much is given, much is required. And this church, probably no other church, maybe even the church at Jerusalem, was given more than this church at Ephesus was. Paul was there for two years. Timothy was there for a long time. The Apostle John, who wrote this to them, was probably centered out of this same church. Some of the deepest doctrinal theology that you read in the New Testament is out of the epistle to the Ephesians. They were given much, and God required much. The other thing is, I think, because God sees the absolute deadliness of their spiritual condition, he is warning them about what the end of the trail is. You know, sometimes if we, we tend to think we can get away with a little of this or a little of that, we've talked about this before. You know, for most of us, destruction doesn't come overnight. It's a little of this. It's a little of that. It's a step off here, and then it's one more step and one more step. Jesus is telling them the path you're on that doesn't look too bad right now, it ends in death. He is being severe because he wants them to know how radical in the end what looks like a little departure now actually can turn into. So because he loves them, he's reproving them. He'll say that later. Those whom I love, I reprove. I discipline because I love you. So I'm warning you because I love you. And I know where this tendency will take you. Look at the solutions. This is certainly not just true of Ephesus. This is true of anyone at any stage of spiritual failure or having fallen out. Look at what he tells them it takes to come back, to regain first love. The first thing he says is, remember Remember, remember where you used to be. I suspect all of us have photo albums at home. Isn't it fun to sit down with your photo album? Because what do you do? When you see those pictures, you remember those times in your life, those people in your life. So Jesus is saying, take out the photo album and look back at what your life with me used to look like. What it used to be like. Remember. Because they had started right. Their hearts used to be right. They were growing cold now, but that hadn't always been the case. So the first thing he says is, remember, go back in your mind to the way it used to be. Remember where you used to be and what your love used to be like. God remembers. 
Speaking of Israel in Jeremiah 2, he says, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord. See, this is in Jeremiah's day when they're far away. God says, I look back, Israel, and I remember the way it used to be with you. And Jesus here is saying to the church at Ephesus, you guys, remember what it used to be like. Look back and recall what first love was like. After you've remembered where you used to be, then he says, repent. Change the way you're thinking. See, they're thinking they'd put action over heart. They'd put work over relationship. So he says, repent. Change your mind about the way you're thinking about your relationship with me and with the work. Repent. Change your mind. Change your thoughts. And then he says, do the deeds you did before. This sounds funny. To a church that he praises for hard work, he says, and do the deeds you did before. He's not telling them you've got to work longer or harder. What he's saying is when you've remembered first love, remember the deeds associated with first love. This would be like newlyweds. You know, newlyweds often take long walks. And it's not for exercise. It's to spend time with each other, isn't it? Or they don't go out on Friday night. They stay home Friday night. How boring, right? But for newlyweds, why do they stay home Friday night? Because they just want to spend time with each other. In other words, when they've remembered where they were and when they've repented about their mindset now, the deeds he's calling them to aren't longer, harder work. It's it's the deeds of first love. It's the things you do because you love that other person. In this case, the Lord himself. So it's not more work, it's not harder work, it's first love work or deeds. Remember in the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospels, Martha's working hard and she's doing valuable work. She's preparing a meal for these folks who are all over her house. And when they sat down later and ate that, they probably blessed Martha and that was a good thing. But when Martha complains about Mary not helping, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing. You're working, Martha. It's great. But you know what? What you're doing is not as good as what she's doing. Because she's giving her focus, her devotion, her attention to me. And you're just busy serving. Serving's great. And that's a lesson for another day. Working is great. Serving others is great. But see, compared... Are you getting lost in the work versus the devotion to Christ himself? Are you with Mary worshiping Jesus and listening to him? Are you with Martha working hard, ignoring your guests, so to speak, Jesus himself? Jesus says that he wants their hearts and the deeds that heartfelt love and devotion bring. He's not asking for more work. In fact, you know, in the end, God doesn't need you or I to accomplish anything on earth. Because he loves us and we're in his family, he calls us to participate in what he's doing. But he doesn't need any of us. He chooses to use us as a means to accomplish work on the earth. But the truth is, if I died tomorrow, you know what? The world would keep going and God's program would be accomplished. 
If this church ceased to exist tomorrow, you know what? God's program would not be thwarted in the least. Nothing can thwart his purposes. So he doesn't need us. God is not in debt and he's not in need to anyone, much less puny creatures like you and I crawling around on planet Earth. He does not need our work. When we serve him out of love, when we participate with him in what he's doing, he loves it because that's fellowship and that's relationship and that's what we're called to. When we're working and we make the work our God, he is not interested because he doesn't need us to accomplish his work. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the one that's read at all the weddings. Does it irk anyone but me that this that is taken entirely out of context? It's a great passage all by itself. Uh, but anyway, it's all about spiritual life and spiritual work, the love chapter. And in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians... Paul says, for the Lord himself, you know what? You can do a ton of things that look great and that are spiritual and religious and that are right. In fact, he says you can do as much as give away all your wealth. You can give your body to be burned as a martyr. And Jesus says, if you don't have love as your motive, guess how much it's of value to him? Goose eggs. He said it is, it is worth nothing. In God's economy, it's more important why we do something than what we do. This doesn't mean we can sin that it's unimportant, clearly. God wants to know why we do something. So one person whose heart is fully in Christ's hand and loves him dies a martyr, and Jesus welcomes him into heaven and says, well done, and praises him. Another person can die a martyr because they're filling their own ego. They've done the same act, and God has no reward for that. God will say, you did it for yourself. Do you remember the Pharisees giving? You give so that other people will praise you. You gave, they praised, that's it. Why are we doing what we do? Do we do it out of love for Christ? If love's not there, God isn't interested. That's not the kind of work he wants. It's not enough to be right, and it's not enough to do right. I like to be right, and I like to do right, but it's not enough. You know, God knocks on my head, Mike, are you hearing me? You know, it's not enough to be right. God says love, first love is the thing. And so he says, remember where you were, repent, or I will remove Remember and repent or be removed. He's after their hearts. This certainly makes sense too. Do you remember the first great command? In both Testaments, it's the same thing, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first great command. And here to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, he's introduced himself as God and head of the church. He says, I am demanding that you do the one thing that I require above all others, and that's to love me. He can legitimately claim that on us. I mean, that's, that's appropriate. He says, love the Lord your God. Then serve. But don't serve and call it love when it's not. Remember, repent, or be removed. 
He continues to praise them. In verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Hate, in our contemporary circles, gets short shrift. It doesn't get its due. Jesus praises them for what they hate. Hate is a good biblical term. In fact, if you read in Proverbs and Proverbs, did I say that? Psalms and Proverbs especially, you'll see that God commends hating evil. God commends hating the things that God hates. Absolutely. So he, here he says to the Ephesian church, you hate the deeds. You've been doing the right deeds. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. There's not a whole lot in Scripture about this, but later on in the same chapter, when it mentions the Nicolaitans, it ties Nicolaitanism with idolatry and sexual immorality. And I suspect this is the case. Remember, the early church was always faced with the temptation to bring in a little bit of idolatry, just like Israel. Do you remember? God told Israel, get rid of the pagans in the land of Israel. Why? Because if you don't, you'll bring in their idolatry. It will curse you. Well, it looks like that's what's going on here. Remember the Christians, they're, they're small enclaves in a totally saturated pagan culture. And almost all pagan idolatry centered around sexual immorality. That was the deal. So probably Nicolaitanism refers to the church saying, oh, some of that idol stuff's okay. And some of that immorality's okay. And we'll bring in some of that. Jesus says, you hate it, and I hate it, and I commend you for that. And then in verse 7, closing out, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. I love this appeal. You know, this is what the end of the book says, too. You know, anyone who wants, come. Anyone willing to hear? Listen to what I have to say. It's a, it's a broad appeal. He just invites all of us. Do you want to listen? Here it is. Do you want to, are you thirsty? Come and drink. You know, are you hungry? Come and eat. This is, it's a wide open. The doors are open. There's nothing holding you back. He says, if you want to hear, hear. Hear what I'm saying to the churches. And listen to what he promises. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember in the opening chapters of Genesis, there wasn't just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was the tree of life. Adam and Eve never get to eat of it, do they? Remember, God says if they eat it, they're lost forever. So he cuts them off from the tree of life. He throws them out of the garden. But the tree of life shows up again in Revelation 22. And I think... You know, this picture of uh, I'm going to be in heaven, I'm going to be picking apples off a tree, you know, and eating. That doesn't sound like that big a reward to me, you know, whatever the fruit is. But the picture in Revelation 22 is it's the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And it's God's throne. And there's no sun or moon because God's glory is so bright. You don't need any stars or sun or moon. And it says from his throne, there's this stream. The water of life is flowing from God's presence. And at this river of life, there's the tree of life. In other words, the promise is, you who overcome, I'm going to welcome you up into my house, my dwelling place, John 14, and you'll be eating the fruit of life 
next to the river of life with me. You'll be with me in paradise. And all that I have, just like the father says to the older son, is yours. And you'll be enjoying it with me in my presence. You'll be with me. All of life will be yours. The tree of life, the water of life, you'll have me and everything I have. Who's it for? Who gets to eat? He says it's the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes. I think we can make much of this and perhaps err. Jesus is making this easy. You remember for us what the kind of work he wants from us? John 6 and John 5 when the people say, what must we work to do God's work? What's Jesus say? He says, just believe. Trust. Have faith. That's God's work for us. It's to trust him. It's to believe in him. And John, the apostle, in 1 John 5 says this, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Our faith overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomer here is not someone who is some super spiritual giant who's who's winning great spiritual victories or something like this. Don't make this hard. Jesus' appeal is for anyone who will listen to listen. And the appeal to the overcomer is the same. It's just to those who believe him, who trust him. That's true of Christians. In fact, it's arguable that every promise of reward to these seven churches is promised elsewhere simply to those who are in relationship with Christ. So this isn't hard. We don't have to do more more hard work. These guys worked hard. Jesus isn't promising them the reward for their hard work. He says, believe me, trust me, follow me, and you get it all. You don't have to work longer hours. You don't have to be more spiritually adept. Give me your heart. Believe me, trust in me, walk with me, and you get it all. You get it all. So that in the end, this letter and the appeal to Ephesus, it's a call to the church in any place, certainly to us, and at any time to love the Lord our God and Jesus our Savior and Head with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength. If we do that, then all the rest comes. If he's got our heart, he's got all of us. If he's just got our work and our actions, he may be knocking on our door saying, remember, repent, or be removed. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that it's because you love us that you reprove us. Like a loving father or parent to their child that disciplines for our good. Thanks that to the church at Ephesus that you loved. You spoke both words of praise and censure or rebuke because you knew Father, the direction they were headed was away from you, away from life, away from the tree of life and the God of life. Father, help us be more concerned and wrapped up with you yourself than with your work. Help us not make an idol of ministry. Help us not make an idol of work. But, Father, help us to fall in love with you over and over again. Lord Jesus, help us to see you high and lifted up. Help our heart and our passions and our devotion be to you yourself. And out of fellowship with you, Lord, help us to work in a way that honors you. Help us to do the things you want. But Lord, might it begin and end out of love for you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.